Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. All right, so we are in a series called Powerful Me, Realizing God's Picture of You, and it's one of those titles that I chose, and it makes me kind of nauseous because it feels a little self-helpy to me. Uh, but we chose it because I felt like in praying over this year that God really wanted to work in our lives in that way. And I felt like the word powerful came, was the word that he was speaking to me about in seeing ourselves the way he sees us and having a self-esteem that's based upon not the shaky things of life that we try to prop up and perform for, but on him. And we've discussed in the last few weeks that true change doesn't come just because of uh, behavior modification or just because we're told the right words. It really comes, true change comes because we deeply experience receiving truth. So instead of uh, leaving you each Sunday with some simple behavior things you can go out and do to make yourself healthy, happy, and whole, what we've been inviting you to is the ancient practice of meditation, Christian meditation, allowing space and time to ponder some amazing pictures that God gives us, that Paul writes for us here in in the Bible about the truth of how God sees us. And out of that, we've uh, discovered a couple of things that kind of give us uh, context to those things we've been talking about. We've talked about the fact that Paul is not writing this from a place of comfort and ease. He's actually writing this letter from prison. And that context in and of itself really speaks loudly as to the impact this truth has had on his life and the impact it can have on our lives. And he's modeling for us really what a powerful, healthy self-esteem is built upon. And it's built upon in his words, in his, in, in his ideas, in his words, how God sees himself and he experiences that because he practices this worship. We've been looking at this one long sentence that he's written. It's uh, translated in English in many sentences, but in the original language it was one sentence. They just haven't been able to translate it in English that way because it's too cumbersome. And it's just like he's bursting full of worship and, and adoration of God, and he's doing this from in prison. And he's experiencing God in it. And that's really one of the things I want us to really understand and get today. Isn't it the experiences of the presence of someone significant in our lives, someone loving, someone important, someone authoritative in our lives that really makes a difference in how we view ourselves, that instills a healthy, strong self-esteem. And not so much the words, not so much the ideas that people say. Uh, To illustrate it, I grew up in a home with some really talented older brothers. So I'll brag on him for just a second to set up the illustration. My oldest brother, a straight-A student, funny. Everybody loved him. He was just the joker, and, and, but he was also really successful. He's getting ready to go to college, and he's offered a great big scholarship to study music. He turns it down. He studies accounting, and 35 years later, he's still the poster child of that business school because he was one of the best graduates they ever had. And, oh, on top of that, he was a great athlete. He was a great football player, great basketball player, and he played college ball on a team that went to the World Series and was fourth in the nation. So, 
I'm sitting here looking at him going, ah, I wish I could live up to that, you know. And then my next older brother, well, he's kind of the same, except he gave up music at seventh grade and he went on, or gave up sports at seventh grade and went fully into music. And now in his particular field of music, he's a world-class musician recognized all over the world for what he does. I was telling you last week about the fact that uh, I had some drivenness in my life early on, and some of that was just simply because I wasn't the straight-A student. Uh, I wasn't necessarily funny like them. Can you imagine? I've had 50 years of telling, telling joke practice, and I'm still not very good at it, right? Can you imagine what I was as a, what I was as a teenager back then? And I, and I found myself trying to live up to it, and, and here's the deal. There were people all around me valuing me for who I was, telling me the right words, affirming me constantly in wonderful ways, but it really wasn't until I had kind of an emotional moment of tangible love expressed by my dad over something as simple as basketball that I really experienced a sense of who I was and some of my giftedness and some of the values. And I think if we all look at our lives, the things that have shaped the positive aspects of who we are, we could probably point not to the words because we probably all know the right things to say, right? We would probably point to a few significant encounters, experiences with people. See, it's the interactions, the experience of love that brings change. It's not just thoughts. And I can't think of anybody more significant than God. And our self-esteem, if it doesn't change because of behavior, because of, but changes because of experience, then if we want to see ourselves, if we want to build our self-esteem on the way God views us, then we need to also experience Him. And sometimes we experience Him corporately. Sometimes we experience Him together. That's part of the reason why it's so important for you here in church to be a part of relationships. That We talk about friends with faith. Having friends in your life who talk to you and listen to you, but more importantly, friends in your life who you'll go to and say, would you pray for me right now? Or could I pray for you right now? Because it's oftentimes in those moments of praying for one another that we experience God and change happens. But it's also in individual times with God, too, and, and some of the moments we have with him. For example, later in Ephesians, Paul uses this metaphor of the armor of God, and he's talking about that, and he talks about the breastplate and the sword and all the, you know, the shield and all that stuff. But he also talks about having your feet shod with the gospel of peace. And for me, for whatever reason, I remember back many times meditating on that piece of the image. And not just thinking about what it would be like for my feet to be sure, to be shod with peace. But I would, I would oftentimes out loud while driving or in the backyard when nobody was looking out loud, just exclaim worship, just saying, thank you, Lord, that you are here, that you can take my anxiety, that I don't have to carry this, that you can replace it with your peace. Thank you that I don't know the steps that I'm supposed to take today or about a big decision coming up, but you... You shod my feet with peace. And, and Lord, that means that the, that the path is secure. The steps are sure. Would you come to me now, Lord, with your Holy Spirit and give me that sense of peace? And you, and you learn to worship God. And it isn't just positive self-talk. It's different than that. 
I mean, I've done the motivational self-talk stuff to myself, the pep talks, writing things on the mirror, you know, believing this about yourself. But no, there's something in that encounter of worship where you're doing that, but you experience something bigger than yourself. You experience the very presence of God, and it changes you. It changes me. Today, as we look at the last part of this long sentence, we're going to glean a couple things from it. First, we're going to glean what it means to be a Christian, what it truly means to be a Christian. So if you're here today and you're not sure what that means, then I hope you'll leave today with a little bit clearer sense of that. And if you're here today and you're sure that you understand what meaning being a Christian is about, then it's going to show you more of the path of growth and remind you what that looks like and the challenges of that path and how we live it well. If you're here and you don't believe in Christianity, then at least today you're going to walk away hopefully understanding what you disagree with because... Now, I'm sure there have been conversations that I've had, but I I frankly can't remember a single conversation I've had with somebody who disagrees with Christianity who can accurately tell me what Christianity is about. Because in most every conversation I can remember that I've had, their recollection of what Christianity is actually something that's filtered through a lens of religion. It's filtered through rules and performance and being good enough and superstition and magic pill thinking instead of relationship with God. And the second thing I think we're going to walk away today, and I'm confident we're going to walk away today with, is Paul gives us another really astounding picture that we can meditate upon that, and worship God through and be changed by. So let's just, since we're talking about experience today, let's just pause before we dive into the text. And would you just along with me under your breath or out loud if you want to, in your own words, just let's just invite God to be here. Lord, we thank you that you've been here through the service. We thank you that you're here always. We thank you for the practical ways you've met us in worship and even touched some of us in announcements. Lord, I pray now that you would come by your spirit and that we would have a tangible sense of your presence and an encounter with you today. Because, Lord, we want to be changed. We want to know you as real. We want to know you as our friend. And that's what you say you want to be to us. So come now, in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text. Ephesians 1, uh, verse 11, we're going to start in. It says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, we're going to unpack this by looking at three different words and ideas in the text. There's uh, three different ideas uh, that come together to mean what it means to be a Christian. There's truth, there's hope, and there's glory. The text starts out talking about the message of truth. If you want to be a Christian, it means you need to acknowledge and choose to follow that, that truth. Now, in our society, we know there's been a huge debate, right? It's been a white-hot debate over what truth is. And the most common phrase over the last 20 years or so has been, your truth may not be my truth, right? As we've dealt with this whole postmodern and the relativism and all the stuff that goes along with that. It's actually really interesting because most of the scholars now say that postmodernism as a movement is actually something of the past. It's dead, and they say it for two reasons. 
They say, first, uh, because what motivated it is no longer relevant. What motivated postmodernism was the idea of the people without a voice, the people on the margins, being able to have a voice against those who oppress them by imposing their ideas, right? So this is going to be a little bit heady, but follow with me for a minute. So the problem with that is, but once you've gained sufficient influence, well, then all of a sudden you're the oppressor. You're the influencer. You're the one driving the ideas. So that doesn't, that doesn't work. But second, they say it's also an issue of the past because of the fact that relativism has become an untenable idea to life and society. Because relativism has the ideal of tolerance, which is actually a myth. It's not even possible unless you believe and live by nothing. Unless you have absolutely no morals, it is impossible to be tolerant. So in the end, postmodernism is unable to survive because its motivation, its primary motivation was undermined by its core belief. If you believe in nothing, absolute relativism, then you can object to nothing and therefore you cannot fight oppression. The truth is you can't live without truth. So the question is, what is truth and how do we arrive at truth? Now, the text says, being a Christian means you have received truth. It says it this way. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed. Now, it says the message of truth in this phrase is the gospel of salvation. What is the gospel of your salvation? And it also says you heard this message. It's something you heard and received. It's not something you did. In fact, the word heard is a little bit hard to translate from the original language because it goes beyond just the the normal vocal thing that you would hear with your ears. The word heard actually means it's something that you've received, something that has become part of you. And what the text here is saying is that this Christian thing, this following of Christ thing, this whole faith thing is something that is announced In history, like a herald coming from a king saying, this has happened. It's an experience of reality. And while all other religions say, here is how you should live and how you should think, and if you live this way and if you think this way, you will be saved, or whatever word they use for saved, sometimes they say you'll have a good life, or you'll be successful, you'll be happy, or you'll have harmony, or you'll be whole. Whatever word they use for saved, it doesn't really matter. They say if you live this way, you will be saved. And Christianity starts not with what you must do to be saved, but it starts with this is what God has done in history to save you. The gospel is not good advice. It's what's been done for you. Now, what difference does that make? Well, if you're struggling questioning your faith, if you're uncertain of it, here's the most significant difference. Many people reject Christianity by assuming it's something that it's not. They treat it as any other religion And therefore, they seek out answers to their faith in Christianity in the wrong way. For example, they would wrestle, most people wrestle with Christianity based upon its ethics and its morals, and they reject it based upon how those ethics and morals make them feel. So, for example, 
Some people, some people believe the Bible is regressive when it comes to sex, and therefore they reject Christianity as regressive because they're making their decision based upon ethics and morals. The problem with that is when we do that in regard to our faith, we automatically put ourselves in the role of God, in the role of the judgment seat, in the role of the final word on morality and ethics. And that doesn't even fly, not just with Christianity, it doesn't fly with even the concept of seeking God. If God is who, he's, who he is, then he's the only one that can be in that seat of judgment, right? So the only real important question, if you are uncertain of your faith in Christianity, is simply the relationship questions and those questions come down to whether Jesus is alive. Did he rise from the dead? Can we have today real relationship with him? Is he God or is he not? Is he knowable? Because if the answer to any of those relationship questions is yes, then that's the basis for real faith. The rest of it is just guilt-induced religion. Because if Jesus is not alive, if he's not real, if it's not possible to know him, if he's not personal to us today, if he did not rise from the dead, then nothing in the Bible matters. It's no better than a Shakespeare play. But if Jesus is risen, if he's knowable, if he's present by his Holy Spirit with us today, then it kind of becomes this silly picture of us arguing about all these other ethics and morals things with the creator of the universe, isn't it? Isn't that kind of a silly picture? You see, if Jesus is risen, then we have to deal with all that the Bible says about ethics and morality because he's real. But we don't have to deal with it from the standpoint of a prescription manual of do's and don'ts and guilt and all that stuff. We deal with it more of from the perspective of a relationship manual, how to experience the most joy, the most peace, the most success, the most love possible in life. That's the essence of the Bible. If Jesus is alive, if he's real, if he truly is God. Now, how does this tie into self-esteem? Simply this. Are you willing to consider and ponder God's view of you as truth? Are you willing to consider that you are so deeply loved, that God would pay the price for your sin, that Jesus would consider all the agony he faced worth it for you, to give you relationship with him, to essentially, as we talked about in past messages, to, to unite, you, unite you with him in, in a sense of, like you were married to him, to give you every spiritual blessing. You see, he considers you worth that. Can you receive that picture of yourself? Now, if you're uncertain of that, if you're, if you're still not convinced he's real, that's fine, that's great. I want to invite you to dinner with us this Wednesday. And we're going to try to take you on a journey where you have the opportunity to be encouraged to experience that. We want you to be confident in your decision of whether he's real or not. So you can live a life full of deep faith, not just based upon some moral judgments. We'd love to have you with us this Wednesday. So second, being a follower of Jesus is all about hope. Now, 
this one's kind of, it's one of these things that's almost obvious to us, but I, I, I do think we tend to forget the power of hope in life. We tend to forget both the power of hope from a positive standpoint and the impact it can have in our lives when, when we have hope and we forget the power of the negative aspect when we don't have hope and the destruction it brings. I worked for a number of years in student, college student leadership and uh, we wrestled with in, in that environment. How can we have these talented, beautiful, wonderful, vibrant young people who have their entire life in front of them are so gifted, so successful, and yet some of them attempt suicide. And some of them get sidetracked in destructive behaviors and drugs and other things and destructive behaviors, yet some of them don't. And we, we, we looked at it and we tried to figure out what's the common denominator. And the common denominator between both those who were successful and those who got in destructive behavior was this issue of hope. We as humans are hope-based creatures. The power of hope is amazing. When we have it, we can persevere almost anything. I remember sitting in marriage counseling with couples, and I remember couples in front of me who their conflict and their struggle, really, honestly, it wasn't that intense. It wasn't that big of issues. The difficulty they were facing wasn't that big, and yet they were, they were at divorce's door. And I can remember turning around and having a session a few hours later with somebody else who was going through far greater conflict, far greater difficulty, had less skills to deal with the conflict, and, and yet they weren't anywhere near divorce and they were much happier than the other couple. You see, divorce, or hope, hope is the fuel, fuel of our journey. And the text talks about it this way. It says, In order that we who are the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption is completed, it's basically saying. You see, the gospel message following Jesus is about reality and it's about hope. Reality that we are loved perfectly and forgiven absolutely and hope that all the remaining dissonance in our lives will be the ultimate res- ultimately resolved. It's a guaranteed inheritance. It's not hope like, I hope my team will win the Super Bowl this afternoon, right? It's this life-orienting motivation that gives strength to persevere until we realize the promise because we know the certainty of the promise. Now, having said that, we need to emphasize and understand that hope is by nature an unfinished thing. You see, some who reject God do so because they, they ask questions, and they, they make statements like, why wasn't my friend healed? Why did they go through this? This is so unhealthy and so bad. Where was God? Why didn't he stop this? And what's behind that is a view of God and a view of our own self-esteem as well. When we build our self-esteem on the experiences of a world that is still in the process of redemption, we're going to find ourselves angry at God and angry at ourselves because things aren't what we want them to be. When we don't settle the reality of hope, the promise and the reality of the unfinished, 
that we still struggle with when we follow Jesus. We'll, we'll, we'll still struggle all the time following Jesus when we don't s- settle that question. And I know it's painful. It's frustrating, isn't it? Those times when we deal with reality that God, yes, He loves us deeply in such a personal way. He even sends His Holy Spirit so that we can have those intimate encounters with Him so that we can really be changed. And yet, redemption, freedom from disease, freedom from pain, the effects of sin are not fully realized. And the question of successfully following Jesus as a Christian is how well have you learned to experience and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because throughout Jesus' teaching and throughout Paul's teaching, throughout the Bible, his teaching is all about our ability to faithfully follow and be transformed in our lives is directly related to our ability to stay connected to the Holy Spirit, to understand He is a person with us, to understand His leading, to know His voice, See, when we face loss and grief, we get lost in the unfairness of God's power and the plan and the fact that why didn't he just fix everything all at once? Why did he leave this time where everything's not quite fully resolved yet? Why, God? But, but things are not finished. Sin is forgiven. But we're still all in a process of being healed from that and being set free from that. Healing is secure. And yet we still have pain and disease. The Bible teaches that God's kingdom is going to break into our world and we will indeed see miraculous healing and yet death and deterioration are still a reality. Until we settle this issue and learn to press into the experience of God's presence in the midst of this issue, even when we don't want to, in fact, especially when we don't want to, like Paul, in prison giving us the example of worshiping, of pressing into God's presence. See, God is inviting us to find in those moments a relationship of love, a tangible encounter with Him that changes us. And sometimes we, we want a poo-poo experience. We want to keep it up here, but think about it this way. There's a big difference if you're going in for open-heart surgery between somebody who is aware of open-heart surgery because they've studied about it, right? And somebody who has experienced doing open-heart surgery 5,200 times. Who do you want to do your surgery, right? Knowledge by experience is everything. Even more so when we're talking about the issue of true faith and how to live life, not just being able to pass an ethics test of religion. You see, all too often we settle for knowing about faith and following Jesus through knowing about faith and settle for not experiencing God through the power of His Holy Spirit. Third and finally, The text says glory is a key element of what it means to be a Christian. Now, we think about glory in a lot of different ways. We think about glory as beauty. Oh, what a beautiful mountain, amazing mountain. We just love it, right? We think about glory as power. Uh, One of the biggest experiences for me was visiting Mount St. Helens and imagining that power. We think about glory as accomplishment. Who Who will win the Super Bowl tonight, right? But all those are fleeting glories. I mean, beauty fades, strength wanes. Accomplishments just become a footnote of the past. 
Think of glory this way. What are the most important things in your life that endure as important? What are you most proud of? Never want to lose. You'll pay any price to have or keep to save. See, we saw this kind of glory just about a week, week and a half ago on a little guy named Tyler Duhan, right? You probably all read the story, the eight-year-old boy who saved six of his family members from a house on fire, went back in and trying to get his grandpa out of bed into his wheelchair. They were both overcome by the flames. That's glory. If a fire started in your home, what would your glory be that you would save? Now, I think for most of us, we'd say what? We'd probably say our family, right, first. Then some of us would probably save your, save your pet next, right? And then a few of you are really sentimental and, and, and you have like this treasured thing passed down from your family or you have this really expensive treasure, you'd grab that next. What I'd grab next is I'd grab my wallet and I'd grab my backup drive to my computer because that's got everything. As long as we got that, we're, just, we're good to go, right? Everything else can be replaced. Get family out. Yes, get the pet out. I love our pet good enough to get the pet out. And get the backup drive out, right? Right? This text tells us what God's glory is. What God would get out of a burning house first. It says, until the redemption of those who are God's possession. To the praise of his glory. Paul in worshiping God from prison, in this long, bursting overflow of worship, at the very end of it, he ends his worship by saying, I am God's most prized possession. I am the one thing. He goes and gets out of the house when it's on fire. I am that one. Now, a few of you might have an English version that translates that uh, poorly, wrongly. Uh, it's often mistranslated until I have possessed it, leaving the onus on us to do something. But the best, most literal translations out there don't translate it until we possess it, but like ours does, until the redemption of those, who are those? It's you and I. Everyone who receives him as real and follows him, who's adopted as his children, who's in him, who has become essentially his bride, who's been given every single spiritual blessing for life in all of the entire universe. And Paul takes that picture further and he says, you, you, every one of you, you are his most prized possession." that amazing? You whose redemption is to the praise of His glory. Wow, can you let that just soak in? I thought it was big for my self-esteem when my dad prized me with a tangible expression of love. Can you imagine allowing God to come to you like He wants to come to you and let you know that so much that so whatever your prison is, whatever your difficulty is in life, you could exclaim the same thing as Paul says in that moment, I am His possession. How valuable, how loved, how precious, how beautiful, how powerful, how hopeful, how odd, how confident can you feel when you experience God that way. Go ahead and come on, worship team. How can we not, how can we not worship a God who pursues us that way? 
How can we not? It's, it's so overwhelming. It's hard, to, it's hard to even receive that, isn't it? But can you just now, even while the worship team's coming, you get ready, can you just do whatever you do when you take an open posture and talk to God? And can you just start saying, God, thank you. Just say with me, God, thank you that I am your prized possession. Or that you considered everything you paid, all the patience, all the pain you endured, worth paying for me. Lord, thank you that I can be confident that you'd even do it again. Thank you that you give me your spirit, that you come to me so personally, so lovingly, so fully, and that you want me to encounter you in a way that I become confident of that. Holy Spirit, just come right now and bring us into that place of worship. Bring us into that place of experience of your presence. Lord, we worship you. We adore you, and and yet you're saying you adore us. I can hardly fathom it, Lord. It's so beautiful. Come now and be with each and every one of us. Let us experience that. We're going to continue to respond to him. I want to invite you to continue to respond to him in worship and We're going to receive communion this morning at at, at your leisure during the next couple songs. And uh, just be reminded as you take communion, this is the price he paid for you. He gave his body, he gave his blood, he gave his life for you, and he rose again from the dead. And frankly, as you take it, just hear him saying to you, I'd do it again. I'd do it again for you. Even if nobody else in this place said, yes, I'd do it for you. Because yours is a prized possession. Let's worship God. Lord, we thank you for being real to us. We thank you for making yourself real in so many ways. Lord, we just worship you. We adore you. Come. Come, let us know the truth that we are your possession that you command our destiny, that no power, no power, none at all, can keep us from your love. If you came today and there's something you need prayer for, just grab a friend or grab somebody in the prayer area at the back. There's two responses we can have to this, this week. If you're uncertain of your faith, I, I I invite you to dinner. Uh, sign up. If Wednesday evening is the reason why you're unable to sign up, then sign up anyway and tell us that that's the problem, that Wednesday evening just doesn't work, and maybe we'll get people that can do it a different night and or we can figure something else out. But we want you to take the time needed for you to be convinced God is real to you. We're not going to pressure you. We're going to help lead you there and give you opportunity to experience that. And I'm convinced myself that he is real, and I'm convinced he'll make himself known to you. So we want to provide that kind of an environment for you in the seat group and elsewhere. So sign up for that. Even if you can't make it on Wednesday, just let us know that's a barrier. The other thing, too, is this, this whole first three messages I've done in this series have been all about worship. In worship, we experience the grace of God. The grace of God is experiencing his presence so that we can see ourselves and become who he sees us to be. 
I want us to be a worshiping church, and I want to invite you. We are already, but I, I think God wants to do something in us uh, this next weekend through Saturday evening worship thing with Jason Upton and on Sunday with him again. I want to invite you. Pay the 20 bucks. Come. Come for a night of worship. Come for a night of experiencing his presence uh, on Saturday night, and then come back on Sunday for some more of it. So God bless. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.